limit, just so you know, or till my battery dies. Okay, so I wanna just go over the rest of the neuro stuff, which isn't too bad. It's a video to begin with, and then like a few other things, okay? Um, so the first slide that's on here, which I don't know where it went, hold on. Er, come back, come back. Where's my slides? There they are, okay. So it talks about the hippocampus and like the two different types of amnesia, okay? Now they're pretty easy to tell apart. Um, retrograde amnesia is exactly what it sounds like. It's forgetting old things. So stuff you already knew. That's what most people think of when they think of amnesia, right? Um, enterograde amnesia is kind of the opposite. It's where after like an injury or something to your brain, you can't make more memories. You still have the old ones, but you can't make new ones. So it's forward. Retro's behind, enterograde is forward. That kind of makes sense, right? At least in some way. Now, most people understand the idea of, you know, forgetting something after a head injury, because a lot of times when you have a concussion, you might not remember even hitting your head. That's a real common thing. And the reason that is, is a lot of times when you hit your head and stuff, you're still processing stuff for that day. Usually memories aren't encoded until that evening when you sleep. That's why sleep is important. But um, what happens when you have some sort of insult to the brain during the day is it never actually encodes those memories. So they're gone. It's like you kind of hit reset and your computer reboots. It's the same sort of idea. That's why you usually have memory loss right around a head injury and the worse it is, usually the more you lose. Okay, and it's not uncommon, but it is really frustrating to not remember something that you think you should. Hello. And um, so those are the two types of amnesia, but the anterograde amnesia, the not being able to make new memories is kind of one of those things that's really hard to understand until you see it. So I have a video for you, right? Um, the book talks about HM, and he was a guy that had um, anterograde amnesia because they took out his bilateral temporal lobes or his hippocampus basically, right? And they didn't know what it would do. This is a different guy who had something that was called encephalitis, which is actually an infection in your brain. He had like pretty much the worst headache he had ever had. He went to the hospital, you know, it only been like a day or two that he was sick. And by then it had eaten away that area of the brain. Um, and you'll see he's kind of stuck on like a little bitty plane of time. And without time to anchor him, he's a little lost, or I should say a lot lost. It's kind of hard to understand until you see it. So we'll watch the video here real quick. Let me do, 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 go back to here. Then we'll watch this. You'll see it's like a really frustrating sort of thing. Now, one thing he does is he talks about, he doesn't really know what's happened to him. Okay, he knows facts about himself. Like he knows he's married, he knows he has kids but he doesn't have any first person memories. Like, if I ask you what you did this morning, you can say you got up, I went and did this, I went and got in my car and I drove to work. That's a first person autobiographical memory, right? Okay, I tripped going out of my house this morning over a box that Amazon left. Something like that, that's a first person thing, which did actually happen. But um, he doesn't have that because he doesn't have time, so you can't really have that first person memory. He knows some things, um, he recognizes his wife, Okay, he doesn't recognize his kids, but the reason he doesn't recognize his kids is because when he had this done, or when this happened, he, they were little, right? And now they're older. And he realizes there's been time. Like he realizes there's been an amount of time he feels like he wasn't conscious, and now he's just became conscious, right? So he kind of feels like that's just happened, and he doesn't have anything like 
any memory of being conscious before, right? So he feels like he's just came around from some extended period of unconsciousness. And when he talks about it, he'll start to rush. And it's because he's kind of sensing that, um, you know, when like people ask you the same question over and over, you get frustrated and you'll kind of speed up your talking and everything. And while he's not aware he's being asked the same question over and over totally, he kind of is because he'll start mumbling and speeding up his talking like he's getting frustrated. So you'll kind of hear him say that and he'll trip over it a little bit, but he's kind of stuck in this 15 to 30 second space and it's like a reset every time. Um, So you'll see what I mean. It's kind of interesting. Actually, it's really interesting, but it's definitely disturbing. Okay. I don't know what's with the Muscle Beach thing. Perhaps it lasts just long enough for us to hold on to and join our thoughts. But imagine that was all you had, just a sliver of time that is the present, without any memories of the past, nor expectations of the future. What would it mean to have no place in time? One man is consigned to live entirely within the present with terrible consequences. Clive Waring has the worst case of amnesia ever known. That's debatable, but... (laughs) 20 years ago, he lost his memory. And now his wife, Deborah, is the only person he recognizes. Because he thinks it's been a long time since he's seen her, right? So he gets super excited. And it's kind of cute. It's also kind of tragic. Yeah, 
What he said there was he hadn't gotten old yet the last time I was conscious. So he, he feels, he knows there's been a bunch of time and he's gotten older, so he assumes they've gotten older. So his intellect is totally intact, right? He can process information. He just said something about women changing the title of their name after they get married, even though men don't. That's knowledge, right? He has that. It's like factual, semantic knowledge. What he doesn't have is any of that first-person stuff prior to right now. It, you know when people talk about living entirely in the present? This is what it is, to be totally honest, right? Yes? So I'm going to a question. Yeah. She asked him, like, where she was going. He said Buckingham Palace. So he guessed. So he knows of what Buckingham yeah. Palace is. So, so he has, like, all the semantic, like... He has, like, like general knowledge, mm -hmm. but not yes. personal knowledge. Exactly. Right. Okay. No so, first person. So, like, if I were to ask New you... New Zealand. Yeah, so... Where New Zealand is. Yes, you've got it. She knows, he knows where it is. He knows where Buckingham Palace is. Guessing she's going to visit there because it's nearby, right? Um, he knows all that. He's got semantics. So facts and figures, right? Like, if I were to ask you, like, what you did, did you go to prom? Yes. Okay. All right. So what color did you wear? Black. Just a black tux? Okay. What did your date wear? Black. Black? Okay. So it matched, right? So that's factual knowledge. But if you were to tell me about prom, you would start off with, like, an I statement, right? Or we went to do this. Like, how'd you get there? By car. By car. Who drove? I did. That's factual knowledge. But if you tell me, you would say, we drove, right? Because that's like first person, okay? He has all the semantic, the facts and figures of the what, why, who, etc. He just doesn't have the other, which is kind of hard to reconcile. But it's true because they're totally separate types of memory, right? but they work together in, you know, normal brains perfectly. So you don't see that. Okay. Imagine never recognizing your own children or your own home, not even knowing who you are, not being able to hold on to the past or present for long enough to imagine the future. Do you recognize this place? Do you answer? That's good, this is interesting. Not only is Clive unable to remember what he's ordered for lunch, but he can't remember which flavors belong to which foods. I would have never thought of that. Looks like chicken. Mm. What was it on? Okay, so there's like vegetables there, right? And he's saying, oh, it's, it's cooked salad. That's actually a decent guess if you're trying to describe something you don't recognize, right? Cooked salad that's, you know, a bunch of greenery and stuff, but that's not exactly what it is. He's, but he's close, okay? Since Clive is unaware of anything that's just happened, he perpetually thinks that he has just come around from a lengthy period of unconsciousness. I've never seen anyone at all. I don't know anyone at all until now. I've never had a dream, even day and night the same. Blank. Precisely like death. No thoughts at all. He says exactly like death. Day and night exactly the same. No dreams either. Every time he sees Deborah, he believes it's the first time in years. 
actually a pretty long documentary if you watch it it's I'd say around an hour and a half um that's just a clip from it and you know I remember when I saw it as an undergrad you know because this is a pretty old this is about 20 years ago um or prior to that because that's why I was an undergrad but um I thought well it can't be that bad because he's not aware of it right but I never really paid attention to that passage where he says it's like death right I mean don't get me wrong I'm sure it's really horrible it's just you think well does he not perceive it but he seems to have some perception of it now the type of memory that did survive that's interesting is the procedural thing so like playing the piano right kind of like riding a bike or tying your shoe so he can do that he just has no memory of ever learning it yes that's like i would say that's very subjective yeah oh yeah there's not knowing anything like who you are or yeah I would think also like not being able to communicate at all like understand speech or produce speech right I think that's slightly worse he's kind of at least stuck on that small little patch he recognizes his wife and he has that he's got his emotions they're linked to it I just you know it's kind of debatable in terms of what's the worst form of you know lack of memory um yeah, having to relearn to speak. When, I mean, things like that. I, I don't know. I would think that might be considered worse. That was, as like I said, it's a very subjective statement. But it is bad, right? Um, and this kind of shows what, what we learn from people like this is that there are separate types of memory because you can lose one and have the other intact. Um, and that's what a lot of it shows is you basically correlate the area of the brain that's gone 
and what has changed, right? And you learn those two things. Um, there's a documentary called The Frozen Addicts, right? Um, and it's basically some people who had a batch of overcooked heroin, I think. Might have been cocaine, I can't remember. But this was back when um, drugs were defined by their chemical formula. Okay, so if you had that one formula, you could be found guilty in court. But if it was a little bit different, you wouldn't be, right? Because it wouldn't test positive, it would be considered a synthetic sort of alteration. And they still do this, they're designer drugs, and it becomes problematic because what happened was they overcooked it by about 20 minutes, which changed it into a different substance, which actually overnight, they became like severe Parkinson's patients. So people that were young, totally healthy, were unable to move and kind of stuck inside their bodies, okay? So what they learned from that, oddly enough, was they went and scanned their brains, and there was one little area that was missing. I mean, it was like totally obliterated and gone. And it was the substantia nigra, which happens to make pretty much all of the brain's dopamine, okay? So they thought, huh, I wonder if this has something to do with Parkinson's. Is this maybe the area that is damaged in Parkinson's disease? And what they did was they're like, okay, so theoretically, if it's the area that produces dopamine, if we give them more dopamine, like via like pills or something, they should be able to start moving. And the movie Awakenings, has anyone seen that? I know it's like from the 80s, I'm sorry, but it's got like Robin Williams in it. It's really good. There's a book on it. They had all these people that were in these like sort of stuck comas for years that they gave dopamine to and they woke up. Um, and that's kind of what we learned it from, was some people that took some bad drugs and really never recovered. Because it turns out what we learned about Parkinson's is when you have your first symptoms, like just that mild shake in your fingers, over 80% of your substantia nigra is already gone. So once you see those first symptoms, we can only kind of keep what's already there. We can do things to preserve it, right? And if we do that early on, in fact, there's some really good interventions that work for that. You can use an implant that actually makes it work harder, right? So it produces more just the cells that are left and you can turn it on and off. So like if you're eating and you need to use your hands, right? You can turn that shaking on and off with turning the neural implant on. If you're going to bed at night, it doesn't really matter. You can turn it off and save the battery because they only last about 10 years. But it's really quite amazing. And that's what we learned from about these, there's about 12 people that were hospitalized for that. Anywhere from full on coma to pretty severe damage. But it was, it was a cost, right? But we did learn a lot from it. And I think when we have those things, if we don't learn from them, we're kind of missing an opportunity. It's not really an exploitative thing because you don't go out and do it, but you have to kind of learn what you can from it. Now, the corpus callosum, each side of your brain kind of looks like a copy of the other, okay? So it kind of looks like you have two, and then this is what connects them. Actually, in women, um, it's a little bigger, so they think that might be why women talk more and have more sort of language comprehension usually than men do. It's because language is kind of on both sides, um, at least vocabulary and like production and stuff. But it turns out you can actually go in and cut that, okay? And you'd think that would probably cause some real damage. Oddly enough, it doesn't, because there's other ways that your brain can get information from the left to the right side, but it has to kind of do it out here, right? So in terms of vision, if you move your head, what goes to which hemisphere changes, right? Because your eyes hit it differently. 
And so that's one way you can do it. But I have another video that's kind of interesting of what happens when you cut this. And the reason they'll cut it is epilepsy. It's another thing they'll do is they'll go in and a lot of times when seizures start on one side, if they can go across, they will bounce back and forth. But if you can keep them on one side, they're much smaller and they don't last as long. So it's a controlling it thing. But you have to have some, usually things have gotten pretty bad if, you've, if you're resorting to brain surgery, right? Um, that's usually like the last thing you do. But I've got a video here of a guy that, um, Hold on. Well, all right. That's going to be that size. That's okay. <laughs> and yeah, it's Alan Alda. We began our journey <laughs> into the human brain here on the campus of Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. I come to meet one of the world's leading brain scientists, Mike Gazaniga, and a man he's worked with for over a decade. A man with two brains. He were working a long time. The collaboration began when Joe had surgery. And you had this procedure to um, uh, to correct a, a, an epileptic problem, yes. is that right? Trying to stop the seizures. I was having seizures like every day or so, or so there's two or three a day. To control Joe's epileptic seizures, a surgeon severed the connection between the two halves of his brain. Cutting the corpus callosum like this prevented the spread of the electric storms that caused the seizures. But it also prevented the left and right halves of his brain from communicating with each other. In the years since the operation, Joe's epilepsy has been under control. He now earns a living at an egg farm. And in his everyday life, he's largely unaffected by the fact that his left and his right brains work independently. Do you feel any different when you think about something that you did any differently from the way you felt before the, the procedure? It's a better backup ready. That's all. It's <laughs> <laughs> something everybody can use. <laughs> I found out how true that was right away when I was asked to draw a different shape with each hand. In a brain like mine, roughly speaking, normal, at least all in one piece, the left half of my brain controls the right side of my body, while That's the hard. right brain controls really the left hard. side. Oh, no. But because the two halves are connected, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> getting each hand to work independently isn't easy. Well, we're saying that the fact that uh, that Alan's hemispheres are connected, <laughs> and that the uh, motor messages from one are confusing the motor messages in the other. I was just drawing an upside-down duck. <laughs> okay. But when Joe is given the same task, his two hands operate as if controlled by two separate brains. What's happening is that each half of Joe's brain is given a separate instruction. He's asked to fix his eyes on the cross in the center of the screen. Anything flashed to the right of the cross goes only to his left hemisphere. Things to the left go to his right hemisphere. Because the two don't communicate, each hand does only what its half of the brain sees. Wow. <laughs> it's really like two different people doing the same. That's right. That's the idea. Okay, Joe, I want you to keep your hands up. In an experiment that's now a classic in brain research, Mike is going to go over. All righty then. Let me uh, restart that and scooch it up. Sorry. Storm. Mm -hmm. 
That was special. Okay, right about you. Oh. Are confusing the motor messages and the other. Now, the next thing they're doing, just so you know, in most people, okay, the language center in your brain, so if you think about your kind of your dictionary where all your words are, is usually on the left side, unless you might be left-handed. Is there anyone that's left-handed? Okay, a couple of you. Um, if you're left-handed, you have about 30% chance it's on both sides or the right-hand side, okay? Which doesn't really matter. It's just where it is, okay? But on this guy, of course, he's right-handed, so it's going to be on the left. Now, if they present something to just the right hemisphere, how do you come up with the word if you can't access the left? And that's what they're going to show. They're going to have him draw it, and then he will recognize it and give the word visually, right? Because they're not communicating. He can't get to the word. He knows what it is, right, when he sees it, and he can draw it, no problem. But he can't come up with the word until he sees it on the paper because it's not able to access the left side of the brain. And that's what they're going to show, which basically shows that language is lateralized, meaning it's only on one side in most people, okay, or definitely in this guy. I was just throwing an upside-down duck. <laughs> okay? But when Joe is given the same task, his two hands operate as if controlled by two separate brains. What's happening is that each half of Joe's brain is given a separate instruction. He's asked to fix his eyes on the cross in the center of the screen. Anything flashed to the right of the cross goes only to his left hemisphere. Things to the left go to his right hemisphere. Because the two don't communicate, each hand does only what its half of the brain sees. Wow. <laughs> it's really like two different people doing the same. That's right. Same that's, that's, that's the idea. Okay, Joe, uh, I want you to keep your hands up. In an experiment that's now a classic in brain research, Mike Gazzaniga, over 30 years ago, used a similar setup to find out if the two halves of the brain are specialized to do different things. Sure. Joe is being flashed a word only to one half of his brain. Words flashed to the right Stop. are seen only by his left brain. And Joe can report seeing those words just fine. Yeah. Good. But when a word is flashed to his right brain... Didn't see that. Okay. So I'm gonna ask but now watch what happens. Draw that with your left hand. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Why don't you try drawing <laughs> another picture of your talent up here? It's a rotary dial phone. So somebody has given him a secret communication. That's right. Now he knows that that is a telephone. Up until then, he was blind. Exactly. When Gazzaniga first did this experiment, it instantly proved that the ability to speak resides almost exclusively in the left hemisphere. Not until he sees what his right brain is drawing is Joe able to name it. He said church town. After looking at church. But he had to figure out about as long as we did. That's really interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a picture here of somebody communicating almost with another person. The communication is not occurring inside the head. It's occurring out on a piece of paper. Yeah. So far, Joe has been seeing only one word. Things get even stranger when he slashed two words, each to only one half of his brain. The 
right hemisphere soft toad. Yeah. And so his left hand draws a toad. So there's the toad. Oh, it's a toad. Right. And this time I was able to guess what was coming. Now we'll put a little three-legged stool in there later. Joe's speaking left brain saw a stool. Saying the word lets the hand that's controlled by his right brain in on the secret. That's a great. That's really interesting. And if he had seen that with, with the corpus callosum intact, he would have drawn a toad stool. Rather than a toad, toad in a stool. stool. Right, exactly the point. I've been doing this for 35 years. So it just shows that that message isn't able to go across and access that word, right? And it shows kind of what happens when you make it out here. Now, the interesting thing is his seizures are under control, right? So quality of life, huge improvement. This sort of thing, he doesn't usually have any sort of day-to-day -day problems in normal life. Yes? So he doesn't know what word showed up on the screen, but he's able to write it on the Yes, or draw it, yeah. Is he looking at it when you draw it? Yeah, he's looking at it while he draws it. Because he, he knows what it is, he just can't access the label for it. So the word itself. He has the concept, or the definition, he just doesn't actually have the word. He can't access the word. That's really hard to comprehend. I know, it's really weird. It's just basically lacking the dictionary. It is fascinating. It's, it's really interesting. And it turns out there's a lot more things kind of like this. Now, his everyday life, not really a problem. This stuff does not come up. This is very lab specialized. You see it in the lab. It doesn't mean you see it anywhere else. So he had his surgery. He goes throughout his normal life. And you just have a huge improvement in quality of life, right? Because it fixed the seizure problem. So these little things that they find in the lab really aren't a huge deal to him, right? Which is kind of neat. Now... While we're on kind of weird things, I want to show you kind of aphasia. So um, if you ever know anyone has stroke and they have trouble speaking afterwards or understanding speech, and it can be like permanent or not permanent, it just depends on the person. Um, usually for at least a minor amount of time, they will have trouble producing speech. Now, the reason we know that these areas in the brain are different, that the speech production, which is in your left frontal lobe is Broca's area. If it's damaged from a stroke, it's called Broca's aphasia, okay? Wernicke's area, right, which is the understanding of speech, is your left temporal lobe, okay? They're, they're about this, they're about three inches apart, right? And both of them can be damaged, but you get something very specialized. Now, you can have both of them at the same time damaged. Most people have one or the other, okay? And I have an example of each, just kind of show you. So Broca's aphasia is called non-fluent aphasia, meaning you can't speak fluently fluid, right? Smoothly, like, you'll, you'll see what I mean. He has trouble producing words, and it's very frustrating. You've ever seen a little toddler can't get the right word they're trying to tell you? It's kind of the same thing. Wernicke's aphasia, they speak very fluently, but it's like someone took a whole bunch of words, tossed them around, and put them in a sentence, and it makes no sense. But it's very fluid, okay? So they don't understand speech, but they talk very fluidly. It's kind of interesting. So this is the non-fluent or Broca's aphasia, so the understanding area. Um, Hold on. Worked um, <laughs> Autodesk, um, seven, seven sales, sales. And so it's halting? Worldwide and very good, yeah. Okay, and who are you looking at over there when you turn That's your head? That's my wife. 
Okay, and why is she helping you to talk? Um, she's a speech. Um, so you have trouble with your speech? Yeah, yeah. And what's that called? Um, phasia. Alright. And so why don't you work now? Um, I, I, well I do. And what do you do now? Um, voices of hope, aphasia. And what is Voices of Hope? Um, Peter Berg, um, Peter Berg, um, and, um, Dr. Hinckley, and, um, and, um, myself, um, founder, founder for me, and, um, I, I, um, members, um, members, um, the, the, um, members, probably seven, six, zero people. So 60 people are part of Voices of Hope, yes. which is an aphasia support group yes. that you founded. Yes. And Dr. Jackie Hinckley is part of that. Yes. Okay. So that's right. a fluent explanation of what you just said, right? No, it's... So he, he can answer questions, it makes sense, but he has trouble getting it out. Okay, that's Broca's aphasia, right? It's really frustrating. Like, it's almost frustrating to watch, even. Like, now... Yeah, it's broken up. You can't get the word out. So yeah. Now this is. It's gonna come up over here again. Yeah. Okay. So this is fluent aphasia. He's speaking fluently. Let me scooch this back and put it through for like where I was looking at it last. So. Hi Byron, how are you? I'm happy. Are you pretty? You look good. What are you doing today? We stayed with the water over here at the moment and talked with the people over them over there. They're diving for them at the moment. They'll save in the moment. He'll water for soon for him. With luck for him. So we're on a cruise and we're about to We will store it right here and they'll save their hands right there for and them. And what were we just doing with the iPad? Uh, right at the moment they don't show a darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> the iPad that we were doing. Wait, like here? I'd like my change for me and change hands for me. It would happen. I would talk with Donna sometimes. We're all with them. Other people are working with them with them. I'm very happy with them. Good. This girl was fairly good and happy when I played golf and hit other trees. We play out with the hands. We save a lot of hands on hold for people for us, other hands. Of what you get, but I talk with a lot of hands for him. Sometime. Am I talk of any more to say? Anything? All right, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I okay, so every now and then he gets something, but like I said, it's like they call it word salad. Basically, you take all the words, you put them in there, you toss it up, and this is what you get. Yeah, so he's, he's not understanding it, what you're asking, right? And he's also not able to get out an answer although right at the beginning like the little short question you can get because it's not necessarily an all or none thing you might have little moments like that where he does understand because it just depends on how much damage there is right now 
One other thing I wanted to show you that's kind of interesting just because I find it very entertaining. Well, not entertaining, but intellectually entertaining. So neglect syndrome is basically where you totally ignore one side of space. So like say the left half of your vision, it's usually left neglect. It's not that you can't see over here, you just totally ignore it. In fact, people get dressed and not put on the left side of their clothes and they can't keep them on and can't figure out why until someone brings their attention to it. So it's like an attentional blindness. When, yeah, when this lady like draws a clock, she's gonna draw all on one side of the circle, right? And it looks right to her, okay? Until it's pointed out. So you'll, you'll kind of see what is it. It's very odd, okay? And there's a bunch of these things that can happen. We, yes? So would that mean that be like, uh, like the one guy that tried to, uh, why was like right in different shapes on each side? Would that sort of be relevant to this one? So which one you attend to? Somewhat, yeah. Cause he basically could attend to both because his brain was intact in those areas, but he just couldn't pass it back and forth. Oh. Here, they can't access that area that makes them attend to it all the time like we do, oh, okay. if that kind of makes sense. So it's one area that's damaged, and that's, of course, from a stroke, usually. Right. It's really rare it's from, like, trauma to the brain, because that's usually a little more global. But any sort of stroke damage is usually small in, in certain areas, and that's where you kind of learn the, oh, we get a commercial. We're not famous. There are no stars in it. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. But it's interesting because that shows you how the brains are organized. Unlike Graham, Peggy Palmer has normal vision. She should be able to copy this star easily. I'm gonna get this star But something odd is happening. One whole side of the star is missing. Peggy has a condition called visual neglect. Although her eyesight is fine, half of her visual world no longer seems to matter. Ten years ago, Peggy suffered a stroke in the parietal lobes of her brain. The parietal lobes are concerned mainly with creating a three-dimensional representation of the spatial layout of the world, allowing a person to walk around, to navigate, to avoid bumping into things. When the right point is damaged, the patient is unable to deal with the so those of you that play video games where you have to kind of know where things are because it's like a first-person sort of situation, yeah. you would totally avoid everything on the left side of your body, right? So that would not be a possible sort of situation. Yeah? So, like, if you can't um, view, like, half your side or the side of, um, does that mean, like, you would, like, need to turn, like, Turning? Turn like a different way to like have it in your vision? Actually, you could. In fact, there's one lady, and it's in a different video that I have, that what she does when she eats is she turns around again, or she'll turn the plate, and then she'll eat the right side each time she turns it, right. and eventually she gets it all, right? right? yeah. That's a task she uses. She turns things to get it in her visual field. It's, okay. it's basically a way you kind of overcome that, right? Yeah. So there are some ways to kind of 
do it. It just makes it a little different. But they're trying to show them here, right? So they're not letting them do that. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of interesting though. Tradition has fascinated neurologists for more than a century because it reveals not only how the brain shapes the way we perceive space in the present, it even determines the spatial look of our memories. This became apparent when Peggy was asked to draw a daisy from memory. But a daisy it shall be. For neuropsychologist Peter Halligan, Penny's drawings reveal exactly what's gone wrong. It's like a radar system, whereby the actual radar system on the left hand yeah. side is no longer working. Hold on a second. Well, what? If she can only do half of it, then how did she get the circle? Well, like a circle is something I think that is kind of from memory. She's getting that part, but then she just ignores the rest. So yeah, I'm not totally sure on that because I, I kind of wondered the same thing, but I think it's knowing that it's circular and drawing it's kind of an automatic thing. Because I, I, would, I would think that yeah. she would draw like... Just the half of the circle, yeah. Yeah, the flowers on that That's what I thought too, but I was thinking maybe it's because it's automated, right? Just drawing a circle is something you do all the time you, when you write even. So it might be automated, whereas drawing the rest of the daisy isn't, and there's a differentiation in that, okay? Oh. <laughs> if someone comes in on my left hand side now, or I hear a sound, my eyes will immediately move to the left hand side. That makes me, for evolutionary purposes, very aware of my environment. Because if I wasn't aware of those things, I'd have accidents. I get hurt, or I might get eaten by wild animals or whatever. <laughs> now, in Peggy's case, she will not attend to those things that we would normally be aware of. Peggy thinks she's drawn her daisies right. <laughs> until it's pointed out to her. You've noticed that, have you? Oh, dear. So what Peggy's drawing for us is several nice daisies with the left side missing. Same with this one, and this one, and with this one. This is a very good example. Right down there on all of them. Sorry. Which means that she's not only neglecting events in the world, but when she conjures up a mental image, she's ignoring the left side of that mental image. Well, I thought I was going all the way around, you see. And this shows you that this is Pulling her not attention to it. problem, but a problem of consciousness. So it's not that you can't see it, it's that you're ignoring it, right? And the interesting thing, they did another study, and um, in France there's a very famous sort of courtyard area that most people know. And they would ask them, okay, with your eyes closed, what do you see when you walk straight this way? They're like, oh, there's nothing on this side, on this side. And what is it? They ignore the entire left. But if you tell them to go down in their head and turn around, right, they can picture that right-hand side again. But now it's on their right, and they ignore the left. Okay, so even the visual representations inside their brain are changed. Almost, yeah. It's close. It's not always, like, absolutely perfect, but because it's, it's intentional. It's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of actually doing. Not until someone points it out, because someone has to draw her attention to it. She can't do it herself. Someone else has, like out here, has to draw her attention to it. Yeah, it's it's something as I said you see, and it's it's really weird because when you get into the, as I said, like what's represented in the brain. That's really confusing to me because, you know, you start to ignore stuff that's obviously encoded, right? 
Because if you can say what's on the right side, and then you think, okay, what happens if you turn around, and then you can say what's on the right side again, you have a picture of the whole thing in your head. You're just not accessing that left side at any point in time. You're only doing it when it's on your right. Okay, it becomes like dominant, okay? Moving on. <laughs> I think it's funny. No one ever gets my memes. Oh, well, moving on. Okay. So, this is called a homunculus, all right? And what it is, is the motor and sensory cortex, okay? So, your motor cortex is, uh, sensory, okay. So, your motor cortex is in your frontal lobe, and your sensory cortex is right behind it, and it goes across your whole brain, because one side controls the right, one side controls the left. Now, the representation you're seeing here that's very odd-looking, right? Um is basically based on how much space is used for these areas. Now, in the motor cortex, things that make more complicated movements need more space, okay, to kind of function. So if you think about the lips and stuff, right? Yes? Did you call this homunculus? Homunculus, yes. Have you heard of people making one of those? Oh, yeah, there's, like, little ones you can get. They're just weird-looking and creepy. You know, people, people have done this. They've taken, like, yeah. an egg and then mm -hmm. put, like, sperm inside of it mm -hmm. and then leave it for, like, weeks. Yeah. And actually creates, like, something living. It's, like, uh -huh. the strangest thing ever. Oh, I have no clue about that. But this yeah, this is just a representation of it. I'm pretty sure it's in Russia. So it's Russia. Yeah, there, there's a lot of weird, like, science -y stuff they do in other countries we don't do here, just so you know. <laughs> like, they're doing genetic editing in babies in China currently. Oh. Yeah, that came in, it was in the news recently. You can look it up. Um, now, so basically your lips, they make all sorts of complicated movements, as does your tongue. So it takes up a whole bunch of space in your motor cortex, right? Your sensory cortex has to do more with what? Sensation, right? So things that are more sensitive, like your lips or your tongue or your fingers, take up more space, right, than other things. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember we talked about... Um, people that have phantom limb syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so think of your sensory cortex, all right? So if you have your left leg lopped off, okay, it's gone. You still have the area in the brain right here for your left leg and your left foot and your toes, right? Now, what happens is you still have that area and that's why you feel it because in your brain, it's still there. You're, if it gets activated, you feel it. Over time, the areas around it, like your hip and stuff, will grow into that area, right? So you start to feel those areas when they're activated. It cross wires, right? So if you touch someone on the hip after it's cross wired, they feel their leg. I know, it's crazy, right? Same thing can happen with the arms, etc. And I don't even want to get into the whole genitalia thing, which I'm sure people are thinking about, but yes, that does happen. Okay, so you do get cross-wiring over time. And if you look in um, Ramachandran's book, Phantoms in the Brain, he talks all about this. And you get all sorts of weird cross-wiring events that happen just because that space will take over space that isn't being activated or used. Okay? But there's, there's videos on YouTube of people making Really? Yeah. It's yeah. the strangest thing ever. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but I'll look because I'm totally down for like a YouTube rabbit hole. I do it all the time. <laughs> Okay, now studying the brain. So back in the day, really long time ago, the only thing we could really do was x-ray your brain, 
which doesn't tell us a whole lot unless your skull has crashed into it, right? That's all we can really see with an x-ray. But later we got some better sort of ways to look at it. An EEG basically tracks the electrical activity in the brain. You can tell how active it is. If you've ever had sleep tests, they do these. They put them on your head and you oh, get that stupid yeah, yeah. gel all in your hair. Okay. Pet scans, right? They basically show you what areas of the brain are active. MRIs, a regular MRI shows structure, right? So if you've ever had like an MRI, like I had to have an MRI of my leg before they re-put it back together, right? Where they could see everything in it. And then they did another one afterwards where you could see like all the metal they put in it to make sure it was in a good spot. It's a real good three-dimensional representation of it. Then you can go in on top of that and get function. And that's a functional MRI. So what it does is it tracks the flow of oxygen in your brain. So if we have you do a visual task while you're in there, right? The visual areas should light up on top of that nice structural MRI you have that looks like this. Okay, so it starts off black and white, but then color comes in when it comes to function, right? So the red parts are hot or they're activated. So what you can do is you can take oxygen or radioactive glucose, put it through there, and it, those areas kind of pull in more glucose as they're activated because that's what they use. So if you're looking at something, this is active. If you're hearing, this is active. You're speaking this area, that's Broca's area, right? It's lighting up. And thinking's a very broad term. <laughs> so you get kind of activation everywhere. Now, an interesting thing is the way they kind of get rid of, um, how should I put it? Okay, so basically there's certain areas of your brain that run things like heart rate, body temperature, stuff that you have nothing to do with it just automatically does, which is really important, right? Sleep and wakefulness. Those areas, they basically have you sit still in the machine and they record what those are and then they subtract them out of these pictures because they're kind of running under it. Yes? In those pictures, where's the blue area? Blue over here? That's just the rest of the brain. It's not active. So like down below, like in the front? Here? Or? On the right side? Oh, this? Yeah. This darker? It just means less activity. Right, because this is actually the prefrontal cortex. It's usually only active in like planning or strategizing kind of higher order processes like that. Okay, so that's kind of brain imaging, right? A few different ways we can do that. Now I want to kind of go over the nervous system real quick. I, I usually do this first, but I want to do it last because it's easier because I figure if we got through the more complicated stuff, you guys would be happier with this. But the nervous system has several different parts. Now your brain, of course, is part of your nervous system. Okay, it's part of your central nervous system. The central nervous system differs from the peripheral nervous system, basically, in the fact that usually it doesn't grow back when you hurt it, okay? Your peripheral nervous system, if you like have a cut on your arm or like when they did surgery on my leg, right? Over time, after a little while, when it starts healing, it'll start itching. Does anyone know what that itching is? Nerves it's nerves, yeah, they're growing back, which is a good thing, right? You can feel stuff. The deeper the cut, et cetera, the longer that takes. Um, and that only happens in your peripheral nervous system, okay? In your central nervous system, you damage that, you're kind of just stuck with it, okay? Yes? If someone is, like, paralyzed in one form or another, mm -hmm. they, like, possibly suddenly get that feeling? There is. Okay, so a lot of times when you have damage to the spinal column. Everything below that, you might lose feeling or motor function or both. 
And usually when there's an injury to that area, the first thing that happens is inflammation and it will stay there for a very long time. Like for example, my leg still swells every day and I broke it in 2015, okay? So you get a lot of inflammation. What happens with people that have insulted their spinal column, there's not a lot of space in there. So that inflammation can cut off those nerve signals. And over time, if that gets better and they reduce it, it can still work as long as those nerves have not died. So you can have kind of a spontaneous recovery after like a year or so. Usually after two years, they say it's permanent, but just depends on the reason you're not feeling it. Yeah, there are. Um, and also, we won't talk about this, but if you take stem cells, right, which used to be controversial when I was in school, but then they realized there's a ton of them in, you know, cord blood and no one wants that. So <laughs> they can use stem cells now and actually regrow some of these areas, but it's super expensive. Um, also, if you bank cord blood, has anyone heard about commercials for that? Like if you have a kid bank the cord blood, they might need it later. That's about $30,000 right i'm sure kids are great but no <laughs> that's expensive right so your different areas of your nervous system so your central nervous system is just the brain and spinal cord your peripheral nervous system is a little more complicated okay so you have your somatic and your autonomic now autonomic sounds like what Self automatic sort of things right so if you think of that it's kind of handy because things that run on their own are going to be in that area. Things that are purposeful are going to be somatic. Yes? Uh, this is a random question, but you know how, like, pain is just in the brain? Like, pain doesn't really I know. exist. Um, well, it does exist. If it's in your brain, it's real. Is there a way <laughs> to cut off the pain sensories? That's a very good question. So you can block some pain receptors. Opiates do that, right? Um, like hydrocodone or morphine, et cetera. Um, but they only block it temporarily. Now, some people with like severe back pain, et cetera, um, they can put in neural stimulators, right? Medtronics makes one. They also make the stimulator that goes in the brain for Parkinson's. They've made a ton of money off of it. And it basically just implants and you can turn it on and off. It stimulates those nociceptors, which are the pain receptors. So it makes it where it's kind of interrupting that flow. It's not that you're not hurting. It's not that the area isn't injured right it might maybe that's inflamed or it would be hurting it just sort of interrupts the signal if that makes sense the neural stimulator does because it's in people to turn them on and off yes i had one for four years it worked amazing there's a yeah you have to like charge it and control it but i will say i did break it because i'm just that way but they do work they, they work really well because you can deal with this either in a chemical way, like with pain meds, which we all know that's never good for a long period of time. But you can also deal with it electrically, right? And interrupt those because signals. Like, like adrenaline, for instance, cuts off yeah. pain a lot. Because like, it's, a friend a while ago that yeah. I soccer with, he broke his wrist. Yeah. And his wrist was literally like up and then over. Yeah, that's and always then, a good feeling. And he was like, he was like I couldn't feel it. Yeah. It's shock and adrenaline. Adrenaline is amazing. So I'm going to yeah. be totally honest. It's absolutely amazing until it wears off, you know, and then it kind of slams back into you. But it, it does sort of help you get out of whatever dumb situation you've gotten yourself into. It's also for, like, people who got shot or 
Yes. It helps them kind of wake up and survive. Yes? Um, speaking of a dread on it, there was like one case where like an adult was like literally um, below a boulder and some yeah. like teenager got like adrenaline like pushed it off of them. It does. It kind of gives you like that superhuman strength where people will like pick up cars off people or I don't know exactly how that part works, although it's very interesting. Are you talking about the it's just, mountain climber that, that happened? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about... Right. I, at first, I thought like, you were talking about the guy that cut off his arm. That was, was like, crazy. It was like but, a thousand-plus-pound boulder that he... Yeah, like, he moved. Yeah. He, like, pushed off with his feet and just pushed it off. Yeah. Like, Which isn't exactly the same thing as lifting it, but you do also get more leverage with your yeah. feet. But, uh, yeah, it's it's impressive. It's it's one of those things that really, when you need it, is quite helpful. Hopefully... So, yeah. Like, I had played softball and I had got hit in my mouth with the softball. Yeah. And, like, I didn't feel it. Like, I felt it, but I didn't feel it. Yeah, it pretty and much like, immediately will, especially any sort of anything that comes kind of towards your head. Um, a lot of times you might not remember that because there's kind of the insult to it, right? Yeah. And then. I don't think I was in pain the whole time. Yeah, because basically you don't feel it or you're down on the ground. Like, I played softball and I was pitching and I got hit in the head with a ball. Don't remember it at all, right? Um, I remember laying there on the ground in the dirt and people going, you okay? And I'm like, why? <laughs> right? You don't notice it at first because it kind of overrides all that pain for its time. Yeah. Exactly. Not cool either. But, yeah, those sort of things, you get a huge adrenaline rush, and then at some point it does wear off, and that's when it kind of sucks. It's usually that next morning. It hits you very hard. <laughs> so now moving on, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems, okay? These are what you want to kind of call, the, the sympathetic is going to be the fight or flight system, which is going to be what gives you adrenaline when you need it. The parasympathetic is going to kind of be the homeostasis of that, which is going to be the rest and digest system. So when your body is in that panic mode and you're pulling up all that, like you've had a car accident, you've been hit with something, whatever it is, it stops all those other things like digestion and stuff. That's not important right now, right? We can do that later, right? It stops those processes and your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, your fight or flight system's there, your eyes will dilate, you get a rush of adrenaline. Eventually though, the parasympathetic will kind of kick in and calm you back down, right? Because you can't just live in that state. It never works out well. Now, one thing that's automatic that's not part of the autonomic system is reflexes. Reflexes don't go to your brain. They only go to your spinal cord, right? So if you hit someone's knee, right, they hit a sensory nerve, you feel it, that goes to your spinal cord, it turns around and hits a motor neuron and it kicks, right? And then your brain kind of goes, oh, I saw that, right? It's not controlling it. It's just controlled at the level of the spinal cord, which is why it's so fast, right? And there's a lot of reflexes. It's not just these, but those are some of them. Okay, so those are at the level of the spinal cord. Now, this is kind of the autonomic nervous system, and I'll show you the sympathetic and parasympathetic. Let me get to the next slide, actually. So here, it just kind of shows you everything that's on one or the other. So your pupils dilate versus your pupils contract. So this side is going to be the sympathetic, this side's going to be the parasympathetic. So this will rev you up, this side will calm you down. Okay, and it just kind of shows both sides of that right? And the parasympathetic is going to be kind of when you're in that resting state. Sympathetic is going to be that, you know, fight or flight state, 
Okay, it just sort of shows you what that is. Okay, and again, this is just kind of that. There's a video, but we're not gonna watch it. So, the endocrine glands. So, not only do you have messages that can be sent inside your brain, your hormones are kind of like neurotransmitters that go all over your 